please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. We're at the second half of this third of the three mountain peaks of the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises that benefit all of us who are in Christ. The Abrahamic covenant of all the covenants in the Bible is uh, probably the most, it gives us the most revelation. It gives us the most clarity about God's plan for redemption in the coming person of Christ. Everything ties into this promise made to Abraham. I said three mountain peaks. I would suggest that Genesis 12, uh, when Abraham was 75 and Sarah, Sarai, it was Abram and Sarai at that time, he was 75, she was 65. Uh, they were met by God in the Ur of the Chaldeans and called out of that place of pagan worship, sun and moon worship. And at age 75, he was told to leave his family and everything he knew his livelihood and everything, and go to the promised land. And he responded in faith and followed God's lead. In Genesis 15, many years later, he renews covenant with Abraham, and he does so by way of a a rite or a ritual, a covenant ceremony where animals are cut in half. It's a bloody rite, and God demonstrates the unilateral nature of the covenant. It's all of his grace that he's going to do this for Abraham, that he's going to make him a great nation, that he's going to give him children of his own, that he's going to give them a land to dwell in, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And to assure Abram that he would do this, he conducts this ceremony where God very vividly um, walks through and leaves Abram to watch because he's saying, I am going to do this. This will be my commitment to save a people for myself. And Abram, you will be the first of these people, and I will do this. And if I fail, then may it be unto me what happened to these animals. He commits himself to this great covenant of grace towards Abram and his spiritual offspring, as it turns out. That's the second great mountain peak. Genesis 12, the first, 15, the second, and Genesis 17. This is the third of the three peaks that make up the Abrahamic covenant. And here he gets even more personal with Abram, who now is at age 99, 20-some-odd years after the first covenant made. Now at 99, here he is promising again to fulfill this covenant, and he's going to do it through a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman. You can imagine the response. It would probably be the same one any one of us would have. I'm going to change your name. Your name's now going to be Abraham, the father of a multitude, to prove to you this is what I commit. I'm going to change Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah, the princess, the the mother of kings. This is a stamp of my new era for you, and I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you the sign of circumcision, which seems odd to us, but this relates directly with the reproduction that he promised Abraham he would be able to accomplish, he and Sarah, and it was also a picture of the seed to come, the pure seed to come. And this cutting away of the flesh was symbolic of cutting away that which is sinful and worldly and identify with God's promised Messiah. Mark yourself and all the male children in your household under your authority, all of them with this sign, a sign of the promise that I have made to send the Messiah. And so we come to the passage now, verse 15, still the same episode. The Lord has appeared to Abram, given him a new name. He's Abraham. And now we'll speak specifically to Sarai in concerning the blessing she will now receive. Here as I read God's holy word, Genesis 17, 15 through 27. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, 
You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him is an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we find ourselves again in need of your Holy Spirit's assistance to understand and apply what you have for us. We marvel at your plan of redemption, and we relate with the wavering faith of our spiritual forefathers and mothers. Please guide the preaching of your word so that we might be able to understand and apply your truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, certainly all of us Christians... And I'm saying Christians, because this is written to Christians and about Christians. Have you ever thought, knowing what God's clear will is by what he declares in his word, have you ever thought, that can't work? There's no way that can really work. Have you ever judged God's explicit standards as unrealistic? They're not really possible in this day and age, we might think. Maybe even in our spirits, laughed a bit about what God is calling us to be or do in this world. We don't doubt God exists in that we owe our allegiance to him. We don't doubt that we're sinners and that we must rest in his provision of Jesus, in Jesus himself for salvation. It's not a matter of rank unbelief, but there are these standards that God gives or these commands he gives or these promises he makes, and we think to ourselves, it just doesn't seem like that would work today. How could that? That seems unrealistic. Laughter in this passage is telling. It shows that there's a seed of doubt in Abraham, and we'll see it again occur in Sarai in the next chapter. It evidences at least a weakness in faith, not an absence of faith, but a weakness in faith for sure. 
Because there's a gulf oftentimes between divine promises and what he reveals and what our personal experience presses upon us. Do you feel that gap sometimes, the, promise between, the gap between his promises that are clear in his word and then the life you're living and the things that are happening? God's promises say something very clear, yet our immediate experience seems to contradict. God had given Abraham and Sarah great promises, but their fulfillment seemed impossible now as they'd gotten to the ages of 99 and 89, almost 100 and almost 90. They believe God, but they can't see how those, that particular promise of a child born to them could actually happen. Now, by this time, Abraham and Sarah were very humble people. They believed God. We know this is true. The text states it multiple times throughout. But they were worn down and even maybe worn out with unrealized expectations in the overall struggles of life. Not to mention, for the last 13 years, since their anxious attempt to try to um, improve upon God's plan, had Abraham take Hagar as a wife and then bear a child. For 13 years now, raising that child, there's great dissension and discontentment in the household. And now they come to this place of their old age. And after all these years, God speaks to them. He appears to them. And he tells them, within 12 months, you will have your own child. They could not believe it. How could this be possible? And even though they voice their disbelief, God does not come down hard on them. He's very patient with them. And he is very patient with you, with us, when we, his children, tend to show a wavering in our faith. He's compassionate towards his struggling children, We see this in the people of Abraham and Sarah, really prototypical believers. In so many ways, we can all relate with the ups and the downs that appear in their lives. I want you to see in the passage as this part of the story unfolds, God appearing to Abraham. You'll see in Abraham that struggle to trust God that we can all relate with at some level. But then we see the response of God that's somewhat, somewhat surprising. You'd think he'd be justified to really stick it to Abraham for not believing more firmly. But we see God's patience and his grace towards Abraham. And that gracious patience manifests itself in what Abraham does. And that's the same impact his grace and patience has in our lives. It moves us to an obedience. And that, in turn, assures us of God's work in our lives. Let's look at the passage together starting at verse 15. And you'll see this struggle that has been going on in Abraham and Sarah's life. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So he's just given Abraham a new name, you will recall. His name had been Abram, which meant exalted father, which is an odd, almost cruel name for a man who had no children until he was in his 80s, and then finally at age 86 had his first child. But then God says to Abraham, your name is now the father of a multitude because I'm going to do the thing I said I was going to do. I'm going to give you a child with Sarah. And now he says something similar to Sarai who needs this encouragement, this assurance. For Sarai, your wife, call her Sarah now. They're very similar. One's just a, a, a newer version of the other, but it means princess or heroine. Someone you look up to, a, a matriarch leader type who will give birth to, as we see, kings. That's what it means to be a princess. I will bless her, and moreover, 
I will give you a son by her. Now wait, this is where you could see the struggle is going to come to light. This beautiful grand promise, but you're going to give me a 99-year-old man and my wife an 89-year-old woman, you're going to give us a child. Now it's important to think of the ups and the downs of Abraham and Sarah for a minute because every one of you will be able to look back at your life and see ups and downs in your walk with God. Now, he's not up and down, but we're up and down in how we relate with him. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Again, I think they're prototypical. They're called to faith in Genesis chapter 12. They go to a land that they didn't know. They're at a high point of faith at this moment in their life, even at age 75 and 65. God promises Abraham children, land, to be a blessing to others. Abraham obeyed God and went. But then a famine comes, remember? That's the part of the story we don't remember as much when we think of Abraham going. But then a famine came, and he really risked everything, at least on a human level, risked everything in the promised land to go back to Egypt and ask Pharaoh, pagan Pharaoh, for help. And he even risked his beloved wife's life by lying about her to go back to Egypt. Low point. But then in a high point, God steps in and rescues them miraculously, It even gives them blessing on the way as they leave. They leave from Egypt and go back to Israel, almost like a picture of the eventual exodus to come when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and freed by God miraculously to go back to the promised land. You almost have something like that happening in a mini level here. And their faith is elevated, and you see Abraham get strong. You see him stand up to the warlords who took his nephew Lot And you see him act with great valor because of the faith God had given him. Great bravery. It's incredible what he does with just over 300 men to go after these these war-hardened kings of the north and rescue Lot from them. God shows his approval of Abram's faithfulness by sending Melchizedek, this Christ figure that assures Abraham that you are the seed bearer. From you, the nations will be blessed because the seed will come from you, the Messiah will come from you. Of course, as the years roll on and you think there should be such security in this man of faith's life, but the ups and the downs are real. And after so many years, his wife, Sarai, comes to him and says, this is not happening. This promise God made to us is not happening. Take my handmaiden. We'll follow the, the norms of the world, the mores of earth. And if you take my handmaiden and have a child through her, then we can see these promises of God realized. It's not that they doubt God himself as existing and they're owing their allegiance and their need for forgiveness of sin. That's not, they're believers, but they're having this lapse. They're wavering. They're, they're fumbling a bit. They're wobbly right now, and Abram agrees to this, and it causes great strife and heartache in their household and in their life and in the life of Hagar and certainly in the life of Ishmael as well. It's a bit of a mess at this point when finally, after all this time, God appears in Genesis 17. He appears We're not given the specifics of how he appeared, but as a personage, we assume. He appears. He says, walk with me, Abraham. I am the Lord Almighty. I can do these things, I promise. Come walk with me. Be blameless in your walk. He doesn't mean moral perfection. He means be blameless in your trust. Trust me fully in what I'm saying. Really, if you think back at your life, the ups and the downs may not be as monumental, not worthy of the pages of Scripture like we have here, but you know that you have experienced those ups and downs. I was thinking of this this week in my meditating upon the passage, and we just had a dedication. HCA had a dedication for the playground. 
that the school still benefit. Hundreds of kids play on it. Church kids play on it. Community kids come over and play on it. It's a great blessing to have in the area. But I looked at it and thought, how sad the glory of modern playgrounds are. Uh, they don't have the real stuff. You know what I'm talking about, old people in the, in the house, which is, you know, a lot of you. You know, remember the carousel or the merry-go-round, the spinner? Come on, where are those? You know what I'm talking about. You get on those until someone flies off. Gone. They've got these really wimpy plastic things now that are way more expensive. That's the odd thing. And how about the metal slides? No more metal slides that burn flesh when you come down in the 100 cent. Gone. Plastic short ones now. But worst of all, I think, is the... There's no seesaws anymore. Where's the seesaws? Now, as a person who's usually bigger than most people on the playground in my day, I love the seesaw. Because you get on the seesaw and you convince somebody to get on, it's up and down, up and down. But if you got a real skinny person, you could punish them for their skinniness on a seesaw. So you get on there and they'd be up there and you would just make, you would make them promise all sorts of things while they're up there or you would not let. Then if they didn't, you just stepped off. Okay. Now that aside, the seesaw is the picture, the up and the down, the, 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 the little bit of insecurity that happens in the process, the up and the down and the up and the down, and that's the Christian life for most people. Most of us will experience those ups and the downs. Now God's not changed. His promises are still true. He's not going to leave us if we're wobbly. Our deficiency in faith is not something that causes him to cast us off. We are his children. He's given us enough faith to lay hold of Christ. But there's more faith required throughout our lives and our obedience and our walk, and we struggle there. And that's the seesaw, the up and the down. And that's what you see very well vivid in the life of Abraham and Sarai. He says in verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations." kings of people shall come from her. What a great and precious promise now personally for Sarah in the midst of all this struggle that she had been dealing with personally. He speaks words of assurance and renewal. It is no hindrance to God Almighty that she is 89 and Abraham is 99. I will bless her and give you a son by her kings, kings are going to come from her. That's not how she was feeling, that kings would ever come from her. But Saul would eventually come from her. David would eventually come from her. Josiah would eventually come from her. Hezekiah would come from her. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, would come from her. 89-year-old Sarah, who to that point had not yet had a child. Many of the promises about Abraham and Sarah here are now renewed. They personally vacillated, fluctuated. Their faith looked like a seesaw. And what is Abraham's response to this covenant renewal through a promised child to an 89-year-old and a 99-year-old? Verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. It said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now notice, he names her Sarah. He believes in God. He wants to obey God. He's already obeyed calling her Sarah. 
but he's just in his spirit. He just can't put together how this could be possible. And he's quietly doing this. Now, you remember when he met God at the beginning of chapter 17, he said, I am the Lord Almighty. The Lord appeared to him. What did he do? He fell to his face. That was, for, that was a reflex of reverence. I'm in the presence of God Almighty. Here he falls to his face, and it's not out of disbelief in God, but he just cannot conceive of what he's talking about regarding Sarah's conception. He can't imagine this. Shall a child be born to a man's... How could this be? You see the struggle in his faith, the honest reflex reaction. How can this possibly be? He, he He laughs at God's promise at this point. It's a natural response. Many years ago, I started a new job on a grounds crew that oversaw 40 acres. And there were all sorts of heavy equipment uh, associated with the job. I wasn't there to run all that. I figured they knew what they were doing on all that. I was there to mow the lawn and pull weeds. That was what I expected to do. The first day I got there, there was a crew that had been there all summer working with all this equipment. I mean, a couple different tractors, a skid steer loader, a dump truck. Uh, They had just bought a $15,000 mower that was a zero-turn mower and back then, that was the first year or two that they just came out with these. So they're a little more complicated to run than they are now. Less user-friendly, you might say. At any rate, I'm sitting there while the boss is telling, giving an overview of that new mower with all this other equipment in the background and such. And I'm figuring this, this battle-hardened grounds crew, they're, they're going to be doing all this first, and I'll have to do my time pulling weeds and such. And at some point, I'll learn how to ride all that. And we're standing around listening, and I'm trying to follow directions, but it was, you know, the one time through, I'm figuring, well, at least I don't have to know this right away. I'll watch them. And it seemed like 10 minutes has all gone by in this orientation, and he stops in front of everybody and says, oh, Tony, hop on. You're going to start riding it first. My first reaction was just to, bl- I just, just laughed. I just laughed out loud. I thought, that's, that's hilarious. No, you're, you're serious. I mean, it just couldn't even help it. It wasn't like manufactured. It was just, it just came out like a guffaw, like that, that, that phrase that's used in Old English, this boisterous, uncontrolled laugh that's just loud and comes out. That's totally what I did because I just couldn't believe that he would actually entrust me with that piece of equipment that quickly. It made no sense to me. This is what we have happen here when God gives this promise to Abraham about his 89-year-old wife being the mother of nations by them having their own child. Yet, verse 16, your 89-year-old wife shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed to himself. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? You see the evidence of the struggle that they have, a struggle to understand God's promise, his approach. It just doesn't seem to make sense. It's one of those, I believe but help my unbelief moments. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus met a man whose son had been oppressed and possessed by demons for many years, to the point where the, demon, the demons were trying to kill his son. And he went to Jesus appealing for Jesus to help. If you could do anything, he said to Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes because the man believed. But immediately the father said, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's what we have on display here with the response of Abraham. And he says something interesting in response. The science does not work, God, but here's a plan for you. Let me ask you to do this instead. That plan that you have won't work. But here, please do this. 
take Ishmael instead, verse 18. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I have a 13-year-old son. We don't have to do this 99-year-old man, 89-year-old woman, new parent thing. We don't have to do this. Ishmael, Lord, let Ishmael be. Here's a good idea. Here, Lord, I have an idea for you, Lord Almighty. Do this, my plan, right? Do my, now, before we laugh, don't we do this all the time? We got a better plan than him. God, I know you want me to do this. You want me to wait for this, or you want me to go do this, or give towards that, or follow this, but I got a better plan. I got one that's going to work better. Even saving faith has struggles, and we see this as he's wavering when he hears God's promise, and he even gives God an alternative. It is a prayer to him. Now, how does God respond to you and I when we offer him our better plans? We're his children. He doesn't say to Abraham, get thee behind me. Depart from me, I don't know you. I've been promising you and promising you, and this is your response, Abraham? That's not what he says. Our God is compassionate to his children. He's gracious towards us. And one of the most gracious words the Lord God ever speaks to you or I, he spoke to Abraham. No. No is a great response of God's grace toward us when we pray for something that is not his will. Abraham says, here's a plan that can work. Take Ishmael to fulfill your promise. And God, in his grace and patience, says, no. We are to pray for those things that are agreeable to God's will. We don't always know what God's will is. Sometimes it's very explicit in the Word, not always. So we pray. And sometimes God will say to us, based on his patience and his grace, no. God said, I am going to give you a son through Sarah. Abraham said, that's not possible, God. Here, take Ishmael instead. And God said, no. Have you ever prayed for something that God did not fulfill as you prayed, then looking back months or years later, you are so happy he did not answer your prayer? God is so very patient with us, our desires, in our prayers. And sometimes he... he, purposely delays the answer to whatever the prayer is so that we might draw closer and closer in dependence upon him and find all of our satisfaction in relationship with him, even if we don't get what we thought we needed. Verse 19, God said, no, but here's the better plan. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Does it sound familiar? He's been telling him over and over. He doesn't castigate him. He doesn't punish him or discipline him. No to your plan. And then he says, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And to remember all of this, my child, call him Isaac, which means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him, again verse 19, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Alexander McLaren was a 19th century Scottish preacher, and he has some great insight on this passage that I share with you. Brethren, if you want to be miserable, perk up your own will against God's. 
If you want to be blessed, acquiesce in all that he does send, in all that he has sent, and by anticipation in all that he will send. For depend on it. The secret of finding sunbeams in everything is simply letting God have his own way and making your will the sounding board and echo of his. See, when we pray, we're actually praying for things according to his will. And as we pray, our prayers may change over time as God moves and directs till our prayers are in line with what his actual will is. McLaren goes on, If Abraham had done as he ought to have done on the onset here, that would have been the gladdest moment of his life. You and I can make out of our deepest sorrows the occasions of pure, though it's quiet, gladness. If only we have learned to say, not my will, but thy will be done. That is the talisman that turns everything into gold and makes sorrow forget its nature and almost approximate to solemn joy. God's patience and his grace are plenteous for you, his children, even when we waver. It's a gracious reminder of God's favor at a time of wavering. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you'll call him Isaac. Laughter. But you know, he doesn't stop there. He's so gracious. You remember, Abraham did ask on behalf of Ishmael, whom he loves as his son. God does not forget this. And look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. So he promises to still give blessing. Remember, he already promised this for Ishmael, and he'll continue to keep that promise. He's going in a different direction than they expect for redemption and redemption history and the fulfillment of his gracious covenants, but he's not forgotten Ishmael, and he's not forgotten his promises towards him. I want you to notice a display of God's sovereign, elective grace. This is always true in the Scriptures. It's consistent from the beginning of the Bible to the end that it's God who chooses who he'll apply the covenant of grace to. He says in verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him. He's talking about Isaac. He doesn't speak the same level with Ishmael. Ishmael has earthly promises associated with him, but Isaac will be the one who continues the line of the seed who will eventually be the Messiah. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I blessed him, will make him fruitful and multiply greatly. But look at verse 21. But, adversative, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God chooses the line of Messiah. He chooses to include some and disinclude others. What effect does this promise of God, this patience and this gracious reaction on the part of God to Abram, Abram's ideas, Abraham's ideas, uh, what, what does it cause in Abraham? Does God's assurance about giving Abraham a son with Sarah make an impact? It's interesting. The New Testament looks back at this whole episode and basically in Romans 4 says that Abraham had faith. He believed. He didn't waver in his faith. It's, it's giving a summary of the outcome of this whole episode, which is the truth for all of our lives, brothers and sisters. If you're hidden in Christ, you'll have your ups and your downs. But when you stand before God, he'll see Christ and Christ's faithfulness and his stability you don't have to worry about all the ways you, you ebbed and flowed and went up and down. You will stand before your Father who loves you because of Christ as your advocate, the totally stable one. And here we see the response from Abraham is what we might expect if he believes. He believes and so he obeys what God tells him to do. Look with me at verse 22. 
when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then, as a response to what he had just heard from God, then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. This leadership over his household. And we need not have to use much imagination to assume how difficult this would be. But he is the authority of the house, and God's told him to apply this sign, this sign of a promise of the seed will come, the pure seed, by the cutting away of the flesh. It's a reminder of what God will do for us by his covenant. Cut away the flesh that's usually lined up with our sin and our thinking of it. It will look forward to the seed who will provide this cleansing for us, which eventually will transform when Jesus finishes his work to the book of Acts when Peter says, Baptize. Everyone should be baptized. The promise is to you and your children. They only recognize this covenantal language as being the same. So apply this sign of the cleansing work of Christ, and not just to your male children any longer. Now to everyone, all should be. It just shows the, the finished work of Christ and the growth now of the focus of God's elect being upon the nations, not just one any longer. It expands, and it's glorious in its application. But it's the same thing. It's God's promise, and we are called to apply it It's not our commitment to God, it's God's commitment to us, and he says, if you believe me, apply this. Verse 24, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. What's the significance of the circumcision applied to Ishmael? The significance is the same as baptism applied to any one of our children. Ishmael will always know the way that he can be right with God is by the seed that God has promised. Your child, we always know that the water that was applied is a sign of what we need. We need the cleansing blood of Christ to take away our sins. And even when we go forward and backwards, when we wander a bit, we can never escape that we've been marked with the sign of God's covenant. And if we ever wonder what it takes to come back to God. It's again resting in the cleansing work of Christ for us. And baptism beautifully pictures that, just as the Israelite would have always had this reminder of how salvation was purchased for them by what God had done for them. And it was open to Ishmael as well. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Verse 27, And all the men of his house those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. Brothers and sisters, what promises of God are you doubting this morning? Maybe you know he says he'll never leave us or forsake us, but we feel alone. He makes promises concerning our children, but we feel that some of our children are far from them or we're just we're struggling so hard to be the disciples we're supposed to be. He'll provide for our daily bread, but the resources seem to be drying up and there's anxiety. We're in Christ. We know we're in Christ. We rest in Him. We believe in His resurrection. We have the promises that are associated with eternal life in Christ, yet we fear death. And what comes next? There can seem to be a gap between divine promises in our feelings, in our earthly experience, our situation. And hear the Word of God. God Almighty comes to us against the backdrop of the accomplished work of Christ and all God's fulfilled promises that we have on display in His Word. 
And the Apostle Paul says, in light of all of this, in 1 Corinthians 1, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He wrote to the Thessalonians, Now may the God of peace Himself, may He sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Writing to Timothy, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, may every believer here be enabled by Your Holy Spirit to know the things which are freely given to them by You through Jesus Christ. O Lord, by the right use of the means of grace that You have given us, may we be assured of Your covenant promises, assured of Your unfailing grace to us in Christ. O Lord, I pray that You would enlarge our hearts in the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. Grow us in love and thankfulness to Christ. And like Abraham, grow us in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience that you have called us to that will certainly bolster our assurance further. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.